This week, how to treat resistant hypertension and new drug-coated coronary stents. Hello and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And today I'm joined by Dr. Rena Patani, who is a staff physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Hey, Rena, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Great. So today, Rena and I, as always, are going to be talking about two different papers and then ending with our good stuff segment. But before we get started, we have for you a new segment from our student, Jennifer Peng. So Jennifer, take it away. Welcome to Two Truths, One Lie. In this fun segment, I'm gonna tell you three interesting facts where two will be real and one will be a lie. So join us and put your knowledge to the test and see if you can guess which statement is the lie. This week's game is all about diabetes. So let's begin. Number one, 80% of people with diabetes will die as a result of heart disease or stroke. Number two, diabetic retinopathy is the second most common cause of legal blindness in people of working age. Number three, compared to those without diabetes, life expectancy for Canadians with type two diabetes is shorter by five to 10 years. Think you know which statements were true and which one was the lie? Stay tuned and we will reveal the answer later on in this episode. Okay, so Jennifer is leaving us dangling with that one. And Rena, I will do you the favor of not quizzing you for your opinion on it this time. And I guess <laughs> we will get the result later in the episode. Sounds good. Okay, so why don't we dive in and start talking about resistant hypertension? So Rena, tell me what paper you want to talk about. Thanks so much. So I want to talk about a paper published in Lancet in September 2015 titled Spironolactone versus Placebo, Bisoprolol, Doxazacin to determine the optimal treatment for drug-resistant hypertension, a randomized double-blind crossover trial by Williams et al., given the catchy name Pathway 2. Yeah, that's way better than the long title you just read. <laughs> yes, probably easier to refer to it um, for the rest of our conversation. Yeah. Okay. So in one sentence, what was the pathway to trial showing us? So essentially the bottom line is that for adult patients with resistant hypertension, which is described as a blood pressure that's not on target, despite the use of three agents for more than three months, the addition of spironolactone was more effective than either bisoprolol or doxazosin, or a placebo in reducing systolic blood pressure. And that was um, reducing systolic blood pressure in magnitude, but also in terms of the proportion of patients who were able to get on target. Okay. So that sounds promising and useful. So tell me uh, a little bit about what we knew about resistant hypertension before this trial. Okay. So, I mean, it's a hypertension in general is a pretty significant problem chronic health condition associated with many adverse outcomes, particularly cardiovascular outcomes related to end organ damage. And just to paint a picture of how many patients are labeled as having resistant hypertension, it's roughly 10% of the population of those treated for hypertension, which globally amounts to about 100 million people. And so quite marked. Yeah, that's a lot. And so there's been some hypothesis that maybe resistant hypertension is being driven by sodium retention. And so would diuretic-based strategies be 
superior, which is what led to asking this question. And we sort of know that hypertension guidelines in general are tend to be in flux a lot of the time with regards to optimal treatment targets. I know that um, on the rounds table, you recently featured the SPRINT trial, which looked at how even just the target that we should be trying to attain is a, has been up for debate for some time, and maybe there are going to be some changes on the horizon. But also with therapies and sort of the backbone for therapies across Canada, the U.S., and even the U.K. have largely been the use of ACE inhibitors or ARBs with with calcium channel blockers, with um, thiazide-type diuretics. That's sort of been the backbone. But people haven't really known what to do next if if you don't get where you want to get with those three agents. Okay, so how is this study designed? Sure. So it was a multi-center study conducted in the UK, and it was double-blind, randomized via central computer, placebo-controlled crossover trial. So what what's meant by a crossover trial is that as much as possible, every patient who was enrolled and participated in the trial went through um, receiving therapy with each of these agents in turn. So they spent 12 weeks receiving spironolactone, 12 weeks receiving bisoprolol, 12 weeks receiving doxazazine, 12 weeks receiving placebo. And the order in which they received it was also pre-assigned and itself randomized. And they would receive one dose to start out. And at the midway point of six weeks of each of those cycles, the dose would be doubled. And um, this was all done as an intention to treat analysis. And just to um, also add a bit of background that for all of the patients prior to being initiated in the trial, there was a one-month single-blind placebo run-in period. Wow. Okay. That sounds really ambitious slash complicated for a randomized trial. It is. And I think one of the criticisms, which we can discuss a bit later, is is the fact that there isn't really actually a washout period in between each of these cycles. And so it's hard to be sure that there isn't any overlap between the therapies. It It is sort of a very unique methodology that we don't always see. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm curious, how, how were they able to uh, recruit enough patients to undergo this fairly uh, complicated regimen changing and also how many sites? And so can you tell me a little bit about how the trial was organized and the patients that were enrolled? Sure. So in terms of the sites, as mentioned, this was primarily done in the UK and they included 12 secondary care sites and two primary care sites. But as I mentioned, all of the randomization was done at one um, central through one central computer. The inclusion criteria for the patients were that they were adults, age 18 to 79. And we already talked about the definition of resistant hypertension being um, not on target despite treatment with three agents for at least three months. And based on existing guidelines, that was usually an ACE or an ARB, a calcium channel blocker, and a thiazide. Did they specify that it had to be? They did not specify, but for the most part, those were the agents that were being used. And um, actually, I I do have to commend them for having a pretty good assessment at baseline of medication adherence using a variety of tools for each of the patients, including monitoring drug levels. Great. Yeah, that uh, that was going to be one of my questions. So that makes sense. And so then you sort of briefly spoke about the intervention, which is cycling through 12 weeks at a time of these different medications. Yeah, and these cycles were done alongside the treatment with their usual meds. And um, even though the total treatment time goal was 12 months, if one treatment was not tolerated, then the physician, without knowing necessarily what agent was being administered at that time, was permitted to shift to the next drug in the cycle. 
And um, they were able to follow patients at enrollment after the one-month run-in period, and then every six weeks, which is the usual period at which a dose titration or a drug change would occur. Okay, that makes sense. And so what was the primary outcome? Sure. Actually, I just want to add that they excluded patients who had poor renal function, which they defined as a GFR of less than 45, as well as patients who had had a recent stroke or MI. Okay, so then what were the primary outcomes? So I think one thing that's really interesting about this paper is that it was the first time that their primary endpoint utilized home blood pressure readings rather than clinic blood pressure readings. And part of their rationale for that was to eliminate some of the concerns around the possibility of having white coat hypertension. So their primary endpoint was the difference in average home systolic blood pressure readings between spironolactone and placebo. And if that was significant, then between spironolactone and the average of the other two drugs, bisoprolol and doxazosin. And if that was significant, then spironolactone versus each of the other two drugs alone. And as secondary objectives, they also looked at whether there were changes in the clinic blood pressure responses, whether there were what were the actual rates of attaining blood pressure control within each of these therapeutic interventions. And then interestingly, the relationship between um, reductions in systolic blood pressure with each drug and the baseline renin levels for the patients, um, as well as they recorded adverse events from a safety perspective. Okay. And so were there any other clinical outcomes? No, there weren't clinical outcomes. And they justified that by saying that other literature has already demonstrated that blood pressure is a surrogate for harder outcomes of morbidity and mortality. Sure. And so you said their primary outcome is measured with home blood pressure monitoring. Was that the blood pressure that was used for enrollment in the study? Or was that a clinic blood pressure? So in terms of the enrollment, I should have said for the inclusion criteria, the way that they define resistant hypertension was either that it was a clinic systolic blood pressure of greater than 140. In patients with diabetes, they used a threshold of greater than 135 or a home systolic blood pressure reading, which would be an average of 18 readings over four days of greater than 130. Okay, so they used either or. Either or. And um, they did have some good quality control measures in place to make sure that patients were taking their blood pressure at home in a way that was appropriate. So they ensured that the technique was uniform, it was taught by a nurse practitioner, and at every clinic visit, the technique was observed to make sure that it was a reliable measure. And when they did look at um, this primary endpoint of the average of the home systolic blood pressures, they required that there be between 6 and 18 readings over 4 days prior to the clinic visit. Okay, wow. So a pretty intensive monitoring and intervention here. Definitely. So uh, tell me what they found. Who were the patients that were included? How many patients and what did they see? Yeah, so they recruited patients over five years between 2009 and 2014 and ended up getting 335 patients which were assigned. They had to exclude 21 patients who ended up having no follow-up. But for the remaining patients who had at least some follow-up, um, they they were still included in the intention to treat analysis. So it ended up being the case that there were roughly 280 patients in each of the cycles, with 230 patients completing all four cycles. Okay, so just I want to pause there and think about how much smaller the numbers are in this study than in some of the other uh, blood pressure studies. 
Um, you're right. It is a small number of patients, but it was based on sample size calculations, which estimated that they needed about 294 patients to detect a blood pressure difference of three millimeters of mercury in the home systolic blood pressure readings with each of the experimental drugs as well as with placebo. So it was justified by the clinical difference that they were interested in. Okay. So tell me who the patients? Yeah. So to tell you a bit about what the patients looked like, the average age was about 61. 69% of them were male. And although it's not directly listed in their table one, the patients were predominantly white, Caucasian. The average weight was about 94 kilos. About 8% of them were smokers. 14% of them had diabetes. And the baseline blood pressures were about 148 on 84 in a clinic set, in a home setting, pardon me, and 157 over 90 on a clinic setting. Again, despite being on three agents for three months with heart rates in both cases that were in the 70s. And all the patients had adequate renal function with an average EGFR of 91 and baseline renin levels that were um, 34, which hard to interpret, but just to say that that's, it's in the low normal range. Okay. So what were their findings? So the with regards to the primary outcome, which was the um, difference in systolic blood pressure averaged from their home readings... Reduction with spironolactone was found to be superior to placebo by about 10 millimeters of mercury, which was significant. And spironolactone was also superior to reduction with each of the other two agents and to the mean uh, reduction by both of the two agents. And in those cases, the deltas ranged from minus 6 to minus 5.3, and those findings were significant as well. So pretty good improvement, I would say. Just in terms of the secondary outcomes, they were able to achieve target blood pressure for 60% of the patients that were in the spironolactone cycle. And there was parallel changes observed in the clinic blood pressure readings, although there was some evidence of white coat hypertension in that setting. And how many patients achieved uh, target blood pressure in the non-spironolactone cycles? About 20%. Wow. So a 40% difference between the groups in achieving target blood pressure, that seems pretty dramatic. It is dramatic. And um, what was also interesting was the fact that that finding was persistent regardless of the baseline renin level, but there was a more robust response with spironolactone in patients who had lower renin levels, which suggests that this theory that resistant hypertension might be driven by sodium retention might have some pathophysiologic basis. Well, okay. So I want to throw out a couple of thoughts. So I believe my understanding of resistant hypertension is based on reading the American Heart Association position paper on this like a while ago. And it's an old position paper. I think it's from 2008 or 2009. But one of the things they comment on, because they also suggest at that time that spironolactone might be the best agent to use um, as the fourth medication. And their theory was that in patients with uh, resistant hypertension, there's a large proportion or a relatively large number who have undiagnosed hyperaldosteronism. You're right. And the authors mentioned that as well. The fact that the renin was low or even what you would say would be relatively low, it may suggest that there are undetectable aldosterone producing adenomas in these patients. And so I wanted to ask if they measured aldosterone levels. They did not. Okay. So they didn't really address it. They just commented that that might possibly be an explanation. Yes, that's right. Um, and so what about the safety of these medications? Yeah, so surprisingly, adverse events were minimal. And um, there were sort of a handful of patients that developed 
hyperkalemia greater than six on a single occasion. And that, you know, was from which they were symptom-free and it was able to be addressed. It was not deemed to be clinically serious. And there were certainly no withdrawals from the study on the basis of um, adverse events related to electrolyte abnormalities or renal dysfunction, although all of the agents did cause a mild reduction in EGFR, which is easy to believe given that these drugs may modulate renal perfusion pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me then throw back to you a question around study design and whether 12 weeks on an agent is enough time to see harms. Like perhaps it's enough time to see the effect on blood pressure lowering, but do you think it's enough time to assess safety? I think that's an amazing question, and um, it's a limitation that the authors themselves describe, that the short duration of treatment does impair ability to look at long-term side effects and long-term side effects. And one of the ways they sort of get around that is the fact that previous studies have suggested that the effect of spironolactone is pretty quick and quite durable. And the long-term side effect that probably isn't captured in this data is anti-androgen type of effects like gynecomastia, which are certainly more long-term and dose-dependent. Absolutely. And would affect the ability to like uh, tolerate the medication for sure. For sure. For sure. So that's that's interesting. And I guess the other thing in terms of electrolyte abnormalities and side effects um, is that these patients seems like seemed like they were receiving fairly close monitoring. And we know, especially with these potassium-sparing diuretics, that uh, hyperkalemia is a much bigger problem in real-world settings than in study settings. Definitely. And so I think... One of the key takeaways is that if you're going to believe this trial and say that spironolactone is the most effective fourth agent to add on in patients who have resistant hypertension, or, I mean, what, what's been proposed is whether we should be redefining resistant hypertension to include patients who have been tried on four agents now, including spironolactone. In either case, patients do need to be closely monitored at the time of initiation, as well as fairly frequently thereafter, but specifically with any dose adjustments or concomitant medication changes, especially because having the ACE inhibitor or ARB on board is going to mean that you're having dual RAS blockade. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so this is, I think, a very useful study. So do you believe it? And is this going to change your practice or affirm what you were doing? So yes, I am a believer in this trial in that um, I would opt to use spironolactone as a fourth agent in the treatment of resistant hypertension over bisoprolol or duxazosin, unless there were other compelling indications for which those drugs should be used. I think so too. I think so too. I think this is a. I think this is a really good paper that, if not practice, like if you were already doing this, then I guess it's not practice changing. Uh, so it's practice affirming. But either way, I think it's it's an important finding. I think so too. I think so too, especially because I think a lot of people hold back because of the risk of hyperkalemia. But this tells us that as long as you're monitoring closely, um, the, you know the adverse effect rate, adverse events rate, was pretty reasonable in this paper. Yeah, remembering that uh, people with decreased creatinine clearance, so decreased renal function, were excluded from the study. Absolutely, and that only 14% of the patients had diabetes, and that's a population, obviously, that's at higher risk of RTA type 4. So just being mindful that um, probably a lot of the patients in this study did not have that condition, which would maybe change the next best steps 
and management. And could make you um, could make you more likely to have hyperkalemia, basically. So yeah, and just to remind ourselves, they excluded patients whose creatinine clearance or EGFR was less than forty five. So that's actually a pretty stringent cutoff, actually, right? Like you had to have quite good renal function to be in this study. Definitely, and I mean, even the average EGFR again was ninety. So these were patients with good renal function. Perfect. Okay. So with those caveats, uh, this is a helpful study that tells us that spironolactone is a useful and superior first-line agent for the treatment of resistant hypertension. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, Rena. Okay. So before we dive into our next study, let's throw it back to Jennifer to give us the answer to her riddle about diabetes. Hey everyone, welcome back to Two Truths, One Lie. Have you thought about the answer to our question? Well, it's time to reveal which statement was the lie. It was statement number two. Diabetic retinopathy is the second most common cause of legal blindness in people of working age. The truth is actually that diabetic retinopathy is the leading cause of legal blindness in people of working age. Diabetic retinopathy is only one form of eye disease that affects people with diabetes. Others also have the potential to cause vision loss, and they include diabetic macular edema, cataracts, and glaucoma. Controlling diabetes through staying physically active, maintaining a healthy diet, and taking medications as prescribed can delay or prevent vision loss. Did you guess the false statement correctly? Let us know on Twitter by tweeting us at roundstable. Hope you enjoyed it, and I'll catch you guys next time. Okay, thanks Jennifer for that fascinating tidbit and let's move on. So Rena, I wanted to talk about a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine called the Leaders Free Randomized Control Trial, which is about new drug-coated coronary stents, so a new generation of stents. Great. So um, can you tell us a bit about why we need more studies about stents? (laughs) <laughs> I, I would never go to such lengths as to justify the existence of cardiology research and more stents, but um, I, I, certainly they don't need another advocate, let's say. Um, I'll give you the one line summary, which is that, and, and you can decide if that's a compelling reason. So this was a double-blinded, randomized, controlled study of a new generation of stent, which demonstrated that in patients who have high bleeding risk and could not tolerate being on the dual antiplatelet therapy that is recommended for the older generations of drug-eluting stents, this stent is superior to bare metal stents in terms of cardiac death, heart attacks, and stent thrombosis as a combined outcome at approximately one year after stent placement. Okay, so I guess if you're looking at the subgroup of patients who are at high risk of bleeding, then this is a really important question. Yeah, exactly. So the reason it's an important question is uh, sort of as I alluded to that. So typically, drug-eluting stents are covered with a polymer film that has an anti-inflammatory or anti-proliferative drug that is loaded into that polymer, and that release from the stent in a sustained manner. So that's like the original sort of first and second generation of drug-eluting stents. And those ordinarily require a year of dual antiplatelet therapy. Right. So these are better in terms of reduced long-term rates of recurrent atherosclerotic disease in the stents. So they, they last longer and have fewer 
adverse outcomes for patients um, than bare metal stents, but they are associated with more early thrombosis in sort of the first year. They have more clotting complications. And so patients with these drug-eluting stents require dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, and the classic recommendation is one year of dual antiplatelet therapy if people can tolerate it. Um, and there have been a, a number of studies actually looking at whether that needs to be longer or not. Uh, and there's some observational evidence about whether that can be shorter, but the, the, you know, it's not clear, but certainly they need prolonged dual antiplatelet therapy. And so the challenge is people who are at high bleeding risk, either because they have a history of bleeding or because they have a surgery that's planned, it's difficult to manage them with these drug-eluting stents. As, you know, someone who does perioperative medicine, I'm sure you encounter this all the time. And guidelines are pretty fuzzy about it. Some guidelines say you can get away with three months of dual antiplatelet therapy. So that's the European guidelines. The Canadian guidelines say ideally at least six months um, of dual antiplatelet therapy. So it's a tough question. It is. And I guess it's in contrast to the use of bare metal stents where only a month of dual antiplatelet therapy is required. Yeah, exactly. And so often we default to that where if we're if patients require a stent and it's anticipated that they won't be able to tolerate 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy, then we often recommend placing a bare metal stent. Okay, recognizing that there's worse outcomes, higher restenosis rates. Exactly. Okay. And so this is a new generation of stents. So these new stents do not have that polymer coating. Instead, the stent themselves has sort of a microporous design or they have some kind of inorganic coating that allows the drug to be loaded directly into the stent. And the theory is that these stents can be used with a shorter duration of dual antiplatelet therapy. Um, and it's estimated that at least 15% of people who end up having stents placed fall into that category of having high bleeding risk and uh, you know, not tolerating 12 months of dual antiplatelet therapy. And is there a formal definition of how they arrive at someone's risk of high bleeding, high, high risk of bleeding? So there are several scores for risk uh, around bleeding risk, but actually this study didn't use any of those scores. I'll talk to you about the inclusion criteria. So uh, this was a, uh, a study of the BioFreedom stent, which contains the anti-proliferative drug Umirolimus, I have no idea how to pronounce that properly, which is an analog of sirolimus, um, which is basically an anti-inflammatory, anti-proliferative, like immunosuppressive agent. So um, to get to your question about who was included in the study and how they defined uh, bleeding risk, so they included patients who had coronary artery disease with an indication for stent placement. So that was the obvious inclusion criterion based on a clinician's judgment. And these patients also had to be at increased bleeding risk, which was defined as one or more of a set of risk factors. Okay. So one risk factor is just being 75 years or older. Um, and so that's a really important point to make is that basically they included, if you were over the age of 75, uh, you, were in, you could be included in this study. They defined that as a high bleeding risk. Other people who are at high bleeding risk were people who were all already on an oral anticoagulant for some other indication. Interestingly, people who had a, a very low hemoglobin level, uh, not very low, even less than 110 in Canadian units or 11 in, in 
American units, um, a low platelet count of less than 100, people who had recent bleeding, people who had prior intracranial hemorrhage, uh, people with reduced creatinine clearance. So there was a number of these different risk factors that they included. And if you had any one of those risk factors, you were deemed to be at high bleeding risk. Interestingly, uh, patients had an average of 1.7 of these criteria. So most patients had a couple of these risk factors. Okay. And were there any patients that were specifically excluded? Yeah. So the, the exclusions were people who were pregnant, people who it was felt that they were unlikely to be able to even have 30 days of dual antiplatelet therapy, uh, people who had active bleeding and people who had cardiogenic shock. Those are like the major exclusion criteria. Okay. So all pretty reasonable. Yeah. Okay. So how did they actually go about conducting the study? Yeah. So patients were randomized to either the drug-coated stent or the bare metal stent at the time of their uh, primary coronary intervention, so at the time of their procedure. Um, And then all of the patients received dual antiplatelet therapy for one month with ASA and clopidogrel. And then they they received single antiplatelet therapy thereafter, typically with ASA. And this was randomized and double-blinded study at 68 sites in 20 countries, and it was funded by the maker of the stent. So the the endpoints they were looking for was they looked at a safety endpoint and an efficacy endpoint. So their safety endpoint was a composite of cardiac death, MI, stent thrombosis, um, and at one year's time, basically 390 days after. And their efficacy endpoint was the incidence of target lesion revascularization, so people requiring revascularization uh, at one year's time, 390 days. Okay, great. So can you tell us a bit about how many patients were screened and enrolled and what they looked like? Yeah, so this was uh, a study of 2,400 patients who were randomized. They achieved excellent rates of follow-up. 98% of patients followed up until death or the end of the study. The average patients were 76 years old, uh, and they had a, a whole host of cardiovascular comorbidities, as you would expect, diabetes, hypertension, etc. Interestingly, so 4% of the patients in this study had an acute ST elevation MI. 23% had a non-ST elevation MI. had unstable angina, and fully 60% approximately uh, of the patients in this study had stable coronary artery disease and PCI for stable coronary artery disease. So I'm going to take a moment to make an editorial comment about uh, how stable coronary artery disease is driving the volumes of PCI. Um, And, you know, the evidence for PCI in stable coronary artery disease is not strong. Yes, that is very interesting. But that's a tangent to our current conversation. Yeah, no, but a very fair point. Okay, so here's what they found. So in the safety endpoint, which you'll remember is a composite of cardiac death, MI, or stent thrombosis, they actually found that the new stent had lower rates of the outcome, 9.4% as opposed to 12.9%. The rates were significantly lower of that safety outcome. Okay. And so then they did move on to the efficacy endpoint. That's right. So then they look at the efficacy endpoint, which is whether or not patients needed target lesion revascularization um, at 390 days. And they found that, in fact, it was superior. 
So for target lesion revascularization, it was 5% in the new drug-coated drug stent group and 9.8% in the bare metal stent group. So that gives an absolute difference of approximately 5% and a number needed to treat of 21 patients. Wow, so quite dramatic. Yeah, uh, it was substantially more effective, basically. Okay, so, uh, but any comments on, you mentioned that this is a group of patients who are at high risk of bleeding. Yeah, so there was no difference in bleeding. The bleeding rates were uh, still fairly high. So 7% of patients had a significant bleed. Um, and this was despite only being 30 days of dual antiplatelet therapy, but there was no difference between the groups. Because as you'll remember, the like the exposure to the dual antiplatelet therapy was the same in both groups. So you wouldn't necessarily expect there to be a difference in the bleeding. Uh, you know, they weren't testing this against the old drug eluding stent, you know, one year of dual antiplatelet therapy, where you would, you know, presumably have much lower rates of bleeding. Okay. Where you would presumably have higher rates of bleeding because they're right. going to be exposed. Mo- lower, y- yes. So lower rates in the newer stent, stent and higher rates in the older, okay. st- in the older stents. Um, it seems like the main difference between the groups was driven by fewer MIs. That was the most important uh, of the individual outcomes. But all of the individual outcomes had the same trend towards benefit or? Yeah, they were either non-significant uh, just because there weren't enough you know, there wasn't enough power to detect any of the individual outcomes, but no individual outcome went in the opposite direction. You could say okay, it that way. Okay, great. The other important point is that the difference emerged by about 90 days. So that's when you started to see the groups separate uh, in terms of having events. Okay. And so, um, so what do you think? Do you think this is a useful finding? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, this is a super useful finding um, and speaks to these being a potentially very useful new type of stent uh, that can be used in patients who are at high bleeding risk, which is a, f- an, a growing number of patients, especially if you're talking about frail elderly patients who are over the age of 75, say, right, as one of the inclusion criteria. Now, I think it's important to remember that this comparison happens between drug eluding, this drug eluding stent and or this drug coated stent and bare metal stents. And so whether this drug-coated stent is better than the second-generation drug-eluting stents that we currently use, it's not clear. Okay. Does that make sense? So like the current standard of practice would be to use a drug-eluting stent if you can. Um, and so in those settings, it's not clear that this this is superior to, to that, right? We haven't tested that question. And has there been any mention of whether that's a future goal or... That is a good question. It wasn't mentioned in this paper specifically or in anything I had read around it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I'm waiting to hear back from some of our cardiology colleagues about this. So when I do hear, I will let the rounds table world know what I've learned. And if you are a cardiology inclined person or know the answer, then let us know by tweeting at me at Amol A. Verma or at rounds table. Fantastic. And would you offer any caveats to interpreting this evidence? Were there any important limitations? I think one of the important limitations is the one that I mentioned, which is that we still don't know the comparison with the second generation drug eluding stents. So it's not like this necessarily replaces existing practice. Second limitation, obviously, there's going to be a question around cost. Um, and so I don't know any information about that. Um, and then finally, as I mentioned initially, these were fairly broad inclusion criteria. Um, and so, you know, I think 
there is a question that remains about whether you know how rate how high does your bleeding risk have to be uh, before you can't get one of the traditional drug eluting stents. Right now, it's not clear to me why you would ever choose a bare metal stent anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fair comment. It's a fair comment. Well, very interesting study. Thanks for sharing it. Absolutely. Okay. Let's move on to our good stuff segment. So, Rena, uh, tell me what caught your attention from the world of medicine this week. Sure. So I wanted to share an article in the New York Times called How Measurement Fails Doctors and Teachers, essentially discussing the unintended negative consequences that might be associated with really fixating on metrics, which is a growing movement, obviously, in healthcare um, to determine quality. And um, it's sort of a really beautiful analysis. And it references Professor Donna Bedian, um, who is described in the article as a towering figure in the field of quality measurement. And he sort of concludes, there's a, a comment about what his views are on what the secret of quality is, which is really touching. So I think it's a great article and a great analysis and really um, forces you to think a bit outside the box. How about yours? Okay, so I'm actually bringing two good stuffs forward. And I promise it's not that I'm trying to one-up you. Um <laughs> Uh, it's just that one of my good stuffs is a little bit dry, so I thought I would bring forward another one that's interesting. Not that the other one's not interesting. Okay, I should just stop rambling and just tell you what I want to talk about. So the the first, my first good stuff, like segment one A, is about the anti factor ten A reversal agent and Dexanet. So this was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine in late 2015. And for those of you who didn't see it, I'll give you a really quick summary. The reason we didn't make this a whole focus of the podcast is I feel like we're like constantly talking about thrombosis. And so um, people may be getting sick of it. So here's what we know. We know that the anti-10A inhibitors are becoming used increasingly in practice. We also know that the main criticism of the anti-10A inhibitors uh, rivaroxaban, apixaban, edoxaban, is that there's no reversal agent. So now there's a reversal agent. So andexanet is an anti-10A reversal agent. Interestingly, it's a decoy protein for factor 10A. So it doesn't. it's catalytically inactive. So it doesn't have any action on uh, coagulation in the body, but it binds the factor 10A inhibitors with high affinity. And so it binds and sequesters the drug in the vascular space and therefore restores the activity of um, of the patient's own coagulation cascade. So this was tested in 30 healthy patients who were on apixaban and 40 healthy patients who were on rivaroxaban. And it showed that it reduces anti-factor 10A activity by uh, like 95% within two to five minutes and that there was no evidence of adverse events or thrombotic events in these patients. Wow, that is very useful. It does sound very useful. It uh, sounds like it may be the uh, death knell of warfarin, except for some select indications such as mechanical valves. Um, And so we'll see. I I haven't yet seen this in practice yet, Um, but certainly encouraging, and this is obviously going to be coming down the pipeline quickly. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. And what is 1B? Okay, so part 1B, which hopefully is uh, a little bit more engaging, um, is a new study that came out of actually our very own hospital led by uh, 
Dr. Laurie Morrison at St. Michael's, um, which was published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal. They examined uh, para- paramedic data in Peel region and Toronto, and they found that uh, survival uh, for cardiac arrest victims was related to what floor you live on in high-rise towers. So basically they found that if you live above the 16th floor, your survival rate is effectively negligible from cardiac arrest. If you live between the third and the 16th floor, survival rate is about two and a half percent. And if you live on the first or second floor, uh, survival rate is about 4%. So obviously survival rates are poor overall, but dramatically worse the higher you go. Wow. So do you think this is going to change our conceptualization of penthouses? I was going to say, well, so think about this the next time you're shopping for, you know, your ultra luxury condominium. (laughs) But maybe these rates will be improved if you use a new generation of drug coated stent. Oh, good tie into the episode. Boom. And everything comes full circle. Um, Thanks, Rena. That's all. That's all I have on offer for today. Thanks so much. Uh, Great to speak with you, and I hope we can do it again soon. You too. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter, at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for listening.